0: Hi friends, our desire is to share with you the transformed lives of our guests. Our hope is that these experiences will inspire you to have a closer walk with God. If you enjoy this episode, please leave a review or share with your friends. Here is the show.
1: There was a time when I would wake up, brush my teeth, look up and see the guy in the mirror, Mm -hmm. and I hated him. I didn't I didn't want him. I didn't want him in my life. If he was dead, everything would be fine. Hmm. And that was that was looking back now. I believe that my wife and my children and God are the only people that kept me alive. I am Michael Xarona and you're
0: listening to Why I Am Here, a show that shares the incredible stories of our guests and how they can inspire you to have a closer walk with God. On today's show, I sit down with Jason Russell. Now Jason has an incredible story. Jason was addicted to pain medication, which led him to stealing this medication on the ambulances that he worked as a paramedic. But this is not the end of the story. Jason got arrested and he went to jail. Whilst he was in jail, he found God by reading his Bible. After he served his term, he went back to be employed as a paramedic, let alone to get his position as a supervisor. Quite incredible, right? Full circle with God, and God can do the same thing in your life.
1: I was born and raised in Berrien Springs I was raised in the Adventist church. As a child, I was brought up. We came to church every week. As I got older, joined the Pathfinder Club, which is a youth group. Went to our local Adventist school that was affiliated with the church. Graduated from there, started in the academy. I didn't finish at the academy. I transferred over to public school I think that may have been part of where I kind of started to lose focus. As I got into my more teenage years, I started to kind of steer away from the church, sort of that rebellion phase. Um, It didn't seem as important to me because the circle that I kept, the friends that I kept, not that they're bad people, but it just wasn't the Christ-centered focus that I had been born with or raised with. So I, I graduated from public high school I joined the fire department. I did that for a few years. When I joined the fire department, uh, one of the things that I found very interesting was I wanted to be an EMT, emergency medical technician, and Mm -hmm. that sort of experience that fascinated me. So I took an EMT class and kind of got started down that path. Um, I was hired by one of our local ambulance services and started off in a wheelchair division which is kind of like non-emergency transport. Mm -hmm. At that time they didn't hire EMTs full-time to run ambulance calls they were all paramedic. That changed a few years later and they started hiring EMTs so I began working on the ambulance did you have this vision of uh, being
0: an EMT when you're growing up, or is something that came no, I, later I, in I re- life? No, I
1: really didn't. That came later in life. Um, growing up, I wanted to be, of all things, an aircraft mechanic. That was kind of what I enjoyed and what I wanted to do. Um, I can't tell you why, but my brother, when he got me into the fire department, and I kind of followed in his footsteps, that was, that was his role. He's all about the fire and, and emergency services, and I kind of looked up to him at that time and and I wanted to do that. So So it's your brother who gave you this inspiration to yeah, go this other yes. route. Yeah, that was, I just kind of, everything he did seemed very cool. It was very, it was inspiring to me. I wanted that life. It was It was fascinating, you know, the, the lights and the sirens and the, you know, the high intensity. That was mm-hmm. that was something that fascinated me. So uh, we were actually on the fire department together, and he is the one who got me, hired into the ambulance service, uh, kind of got my name in the door and, and got me interviews and things like
0: that. So so now you're in the fire department mm-hmm. and I guess you were, you were enjoying it by mm-hmm. <laughs> this time. And yeah. was it all you expected, the fire, the excitement, you know, when you're growing up, you don't kind of have the actual picture of mm-hmm. work. You're just thinking, oh, when I grow up or when I get a chance, I want to do this in life. Was it as exciting as you, you saw it in your brother when you were actually working at the fire department?
1: It was. It was uh, the fire department is very interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great group of people. Um, it's a mm-hmm. family and the, the camaraderie that you see and the excitement and, and you, the, the experiences that you have with each other, you tend to just grow extremely close to each other mm-hmm. because that's not something that everybody understands. Much like in, in emergency services, with being a medic and things like that, there are experiences that you'll go through with families that the general population just doesn't understand because mm-hmm. they've not seen it. It's not all what you see on television. It's it's There's a very real dynamic to it.
0: Now you're on this job, and what happens next?
1: So I was I started off, as I mentioned, in their wheelchair division, uh-huh. uh, worked my way up to road personnel. Um Fast forward a few years, I, I actually became a dispatch supervisor um, where I worked, you know, monitoring people, doing assignments and schedules and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But eventually that transitioned to an opportunity to be a supervisor on the street after I got my medical license. So I was a field supervisor. I did that. I had a crew of 12 folks, and that was probably my favorite job. I absolutely loved that that position it was just fascinating to me there's a lot of stress with that that comes with it there but there is you really build relationships and you build friendships with the people that you're working with Mm because again of the experiences that you share together and seeing each other all the time typically our shifts are 24 hours so you're away from home and this kind of becomes a second family to you these are the people that you see and you're with constantly. All the time.
0: Yep. Most Absolutely. of the time. And yep. you build that relationship, that yes. camaraderie, Absolutely. working together. Absolutely. In what ways is it stressful? Was it stressful
1: at that time? One of the biggest stressors is purely just the hours, um, you know, the 24 hours, again, away from home. While it has its good aspects, the negative of that, it can be very taking on your family life, especially if you have small children. It's hard for them to understand when you're not home. You know, it's... Mm-hmm. You don't have that eight to five. You know, you get up, you take the kids to school, you pick them up, you bring them home. That's you're completely gone. Mm -hmm. And there's there's those days where you're just so busy that you don't even have a chance maybe to call home just to check in and say, hey, I love you guys, thinking about you. You just that takes a toll on a person. Wow, is it
0: that busy that you cannot even take a call? There, there are those moments. (laughs) Wow,
1: Um, paramedics can. I mean, at, at those services, much much like police, there's just mm-hmm. those days where things are so busy, there's so many requests for service, you just don't have an opportunity maybe to even grab a bite to eat or to sit down and take a moment to catch your breath, and it's one after the other, and it, it can take a toll.
0: Mm. Now you are the field supervisor. Mm-hmm. It's busy. It's sometimes stressful, but you are building these relationships with your coworkers and uh, what then happens next
1: so basically i i kind of let stress get the better of me to get to where kind of this story begins is there are there are certain things that really really get to you and they you know they just they keep you awake at night and mm-hmm. and how you deal with that there are constructive ways and there are not constructive ways okay i, I sort of took a non constructive path I I was a drinker, as I mentioned earlier. I kind of steered away from the church and I mm-hmm. got into alcohol and, and things like that. And I used to drink quite a bit off duty. Not, I, I believe I was functional, mm-hmm. like I didn't miss work and things like that, but I liked to party and I liked to go out and go with my friends and, and kind of live that life. And in my mind, it was okay because of all that I dealt with. Mm-hmm. This was my escape, this, this helped me de-stress so I was injured in a softball game they, what I ended up doing I dislocated my shoulder and was put on pain medications just which is a fairly typical occurrence for, for that type of injury mm-hmm. that pain medication obviously took my pain away but it also it gave me this feeling of euphoria like this is this is great this is how I want to feel all the time because I don't hurt things don't bother me I, I, I can deal with this, I pop a pill, I take a nap, everything's okay. So eventually what happens is you're given a script for medication, well, mm-hmm. doctors will typically give you for so right. long time right. and right. Then that uh-huh. runs out. Uh-huh. Well, when it runs out and you crave that feeling, well, you want it back. So it sort of started this having to convince people that, well, I'm not okay, I still hurt, I have injuries, but I'm working, so it's okay, so hey man, I know you have a script for medication. Can I get a couple pills from you? You didn't have pain at all, but you just needed that feeling that yeah. that medication yeah. brought to at, you. I had absolutely reached a point where it wasn't about the pain any longer. It was uh-huh. about craving that feeling. Okay.
0: You know? So, it was just craving, was it doing anything to your mind whereby it helped you with your stress or anything, or it was just the craving?
1: At the moment, I would tell you absolutely, this was uh-huh. fixing everything. Looking back on it now, it was sending me down a spiral that was leading okay. to nowhere. Absolutely. absolutely.
0: Now, you, you have this craving and you're trying to convince people that you still have the pain mm-hmm. or you still
1: need the medication, mm-hmm. and then what happens? So. I would talk to different people that I worked with and even family members, you know, hey, I know you have this medication you were given for whatever. Maybe you didn't use it. Uh-huh. Can I have it? Because my, my shoulders really bothering me or today my knee hurts and I was very good at convincing people that it, was, it wasn't it was a big deal. It was it was just, eh, you know, I just need it for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because I had this multitude of people that I could talk to. So if I talk to a bunch of different people about it, uh-huh. nobody really becomes suspicious, at least not that I was aware of. Because if I get two or three from this guy and two uh-huh. or three from this fellow, and a couple from this young lady, then, you know, this is okay because instead of constantly being at the same person. And you were... A field supervisor, they mm-hmm. trusted you as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, Absolutely. they didn't suspect anything. They did not. Um, and that, that is one of the most heart-wrenching things for me mm-hmm. is the betrayal of trust that I did to those that looked up to me mm. at the time. Um, as I mentioned, these these were friends. These were people that I truly cared right, about. Right. And when this was going on, to look at them and know I knew that I was lying. They may or may not have known,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but I knew that I was. And that's very difficult to deal with, which just potentiated the problem. It made it worse because now the people that that I should have been the most accountable to, mm-hmm. I have to look at them and I'm lying to them. And it's very difficult. So. Now I have even more stress. I yeah, have even more. It's, it's I more. need it more because now my problem is even bigger. So yeah, I it's
0: more like a double problem. Exactly. Where you still you still have the guilt yeah. of uh, what you're doing mm-hmm. and the guilt of the people that you're mm-hmm. lying to.
1: Absolutely, and all the time knowing exactly what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and and knowing that this is wrong, but not having the ability to stop, not having the ability to say okay, I can just be done with this. So
0: now you are, you are getting all this, this medication mm-hmm. from these people. Mm-hmm. How long did it go for what happened?
1: It was probably, I would guess maybe about a year that that type of scenario was playing out where I was going to different people and doing these types of different things and, mm-hmm. and drinking. And, and that was my vice, that was my way to deal with it. So after a while, I've exhausted all of my resources. There's now nobody I can else I can talk to because if I talk too much to a person, uh-huh. they're gonna get suspicious. Mm-hmm. So I have to maintain this image that everything is okay. So I ran out of the ability to get the pills, to get the medications that way. Mm-hmm. So one night I'm, I'm at work and for anybody who's ever dealt with addiction, they'll understand what I mean by withdrawal and you have just that that total almost like the flu just you you're just achy you crave it you, you you feel miserable and you know what you need you know what what it is mm-hmm. but I don't have it and I'm thinking to myself because on every ambulance there's narcotics ALS ambulances carry narcotics for patients that are injured car right, accidents right, broken bones right. things like mm-hmm. that so I'm sitting at the station and I know that the very thing that can fix this miserable feeling I'm dealing with is 10, 15 feet away. Oh. So the temptation was just overwhelming, but the commitment to to be to do the right thing wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I went to the ambulance, and, and I remember very vividly that first time where I took the drugs from, from the ambulance. And, you know, I, I loaded the syringe, and I, and I put the needle in my arm, and... And it fixed, I say fixed, you know, in quotes, but right. there was an immediate resolution to my yeah, problem. Yeah, it
0: satisfied that yeah. craving that you yeah. had, but it wasn't
1: making the problem. No, that was away. that was the, the step that put me over the edge. That just, like, I knew in my mind at that moment mm-hmm. that I no longer had any control, but I had to stay, I had to convince people, I had, it was okay to me, even though I was out of control, I knew that I I can handle this, I can can keep it a secret, Mm -hmm. I can get help, I just need a couple more days and, and I can stop, and then it won't be an issue. So it got to the point where I would take the medications, use them, and then put empty vials or put put water back in the vials and put them back in the ambulances because that was the way that nobody was going to find out so mm-hmm. nobody would know so now not only am I taking it for myself I'm now compromising a patient in the future who may need that because right, when, right, right. when one of my coworkers has been is giving pain medication to a patient mm-hmm. they're not because I've taken it and replaced it with what isn't going to work so now I'm hurting more people Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's I, just getting bigger uh-huh. and th- the guilt with that I can't even I can't describe that It, if I had to try it would just this amazing pressure just this huge burden but not knowing how to stop it because now what do I do how do I how do I say how do I fix this because yeah it's I can't. more like becoming like a
0: ripple effect mm-hmm. <laughs> one problem is leading to another exactly. and leading to another and leading exactly. to another and more guilt is just mm-hmm. coming
1: yep Exactly. So at one point, I started to actually, rather than replace the medications, uh-huh. I would just, they they came in little bags. You know, they were sealed bags. So I would just take the whole bag. And then I could dispose of it, and there wasn't empty vials and things like that. So nobody would know. It would just, well, it was a missing bag. Somebody didn't stock it. it you know, it's it's a supply problem. Mm-hmm. So that this is easy. So again, now I'm doing something that potentially can blame my co-workers for hmm. that well if they left the truck and it didn't have this equipment in it well that's on them because they're supposed to make sure it's in there right, right. they're doing their job and I'm uh-huh. I'm undermining everybody and I'm doing this as their supervisor and as their friend again just as you mentioned the ripple effect uh, yes. it's just getting worse and worse and worse mm-hmm. but I can't stop it I don't know how to stop it at this point so they started to, as bags started to disappear and the supply, because there's only a limited amount of bags in the system mm-hmm. and they're all numbered. Well, as they start to disappear, of course, people start asking questions. Well, hey, what's going on? This isn't one bag missed. This is two, three, five, six. Something
0: have, is happening. They're missing all the time. Exactly. If it was just once, they right. would
1: say, oh, that was a mistake right. or something happened. Right. Yeah. And I, I would do like, I wouldn't always take from the same truck. I would switch trucks. I would because then if I'm taken from all these different trucks, it mm-hmm. doesn't point the finger back at me because there's all these people now that are involved. So everybody mm-hmm. is a potential suspect. So now again, we're involving a much greater group of people. Right, right. Because everybody is now looking at each other and nobody trusts anybody and hey, who's doing this? Because it's a family and people want to know mm-hmm. something is going on. There we have to find out what it is. So people are asking questions and, and there's meetings and there's management meetings about, hey, what are we going to do to track this down? So I am, as a supervisor, I'm mm-hmm. sitting in the management meeting listening to the plan of how they're going to try to catch the person who's doing this. And you know who I know the person is. All I have to do is look in a mirror and I can tell you exactly who's doing it. Hmm. And that, and I, there was a time when I would wake up brush my teeth look up and see the guy in the mirror mm-hmm. and i hated him i didn't i didn't want him i didn't want him in my life if he was dead everything would be fine hmm. and that was that was looking back now i believe that my wife and my children and god are the only people that kept me alive because there was a time where i seriously contemplated suicide mm. i i didn't want i that was the only solution that I could see that was the only way out of this because if I came forward all of these people that I've now kind of implicated in this are going to be mad mm-hmm. all of these friends that I've I've known for years are going to turn on me where do I do what do I so to me the easy out is well I'll I'll eat the bullet you know if 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 that fixes it I couldn't ever I never took an action that, It was always just an ideology. Mm -hmm. And I think because of the children, because of my wife, at that time, having the background that I had, I knew that God was there. I've always believed in God, even at the worst moments. But I felt that he would understand if that's what it came to, because he wouldn't have let me get this far if it wasn't okay. So now I'm also blaming God for letting this happen.
0: Yeah, for for the actions that you are doing. And you're thinking that if he didn't want me to do this, he should have come through and stopped it somehow.
1: Because everybody was to blame except me. It Mm. wasn't my fault because of a thousand reasons, whatever it was, I could always justify it to me. Much like I I justified that I wasn't an addict, I wasn't a junkie, because I was using clean needles. I was taking pharmacy-grade medications. So I'm not, I'm not like that guy on the street corner. Right. That's not right. Me. Right. That's taking math or cocaine or something like yeah, that. that. That's I'm doing the same thing. Everything is identical. I'm just doing it in my bathroom mm-hmm. as opposed to on the street corner. So it's, it's absolutely no different, but in my mind, I justified it because, well, I'm, I'm a trained professional. I know what I'm doing. Right. Right. This is, this is just my way of dealing with stress. So it's okay. Mm-hmm. Did you ever
0: felt like, I really want to do what's right, but I cannot?
1: I did. I did. I wanted to stop. I wanted I wanted it to just go away, mm-hmm. uh, but I had no idea how. I knew I couldn't say anything. I knew I couldn't ask for help because the moment that I did, well, now everybody's going to know exactly what's been going on. They're going to know who it is. Right. So if I come forward and say, hey, I have this problem, mm-hmm. oh, okay, well, now we know. and. I didn't feel at that time that I was going to get support, that it was going to be punitive instead. Mm-hmm. And I I, I I, didn't want that, nobody wants that. So I I did what I could to avoid that.
0: Now they're holding meetings mm-hmm. to try and find out what's mm-hmm. happening, what takes place next?
1: All of these are going on and, and, and these, these conversations are being had and people are, are pointing fingers and things. So one day I'm at work, I also worked part-time for a another physician in mm-hmm. the area as a medic. It was in a doctor's office. And I'm at work one day and I get a call from my operations manager at the time. And he says, hey, we might have a break. There's we got a guy on camera coming in to the station taking what looks to be a drug bag out of one of the ambulances and walking out the back door. So he tells me this. Mm-hmm. I know it's me. Because I everything he tells me is exactly what I have done you know the night before. So I'm in panic mode. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what you know how do I, how do I stop this how do I get out of this? After work, I go home and I sit down and I, and I talk to my wife and I tell her everything. I, it just all comes out. She will tell you to this day she had no clue of the drug use. Hmm. She will tell you that I would come home. I would sleep all day. I would yell at her. I would yell at the kids. Mm-hmm. But she just attributed that to too many hours, having too many things going on. So
0: um, you're telling her how many years worth of information?
1: Like. The, basically at that time it was, honey, this is where it started. Uh-huh. This is what I've been doing because mm-hmm. she was aware that people were that somebody was taking the medicines from the ambulances. Okay. Because I had talked to her about it. Because that was a way for me to kind of kind of let it off because mm-hmm. can you believe this is going on and kind of see engage her reaction right. she just didn't have any clue that it was me so i'm now lying to the most important person in my life mm-hmm. that has been the most supportive who's who's done everything she could and i am put her in an impossible position so now when i tell her this what I expect is her to be angry. What I expect is her to, I'm taking the kids and I'm leaving. There's no way I'm dealing with this. Right. She was anything but. She said, it doesn't matter. Whatever happens, happens. We're going to get through this. The kids and I love you. She never once wavered in anything. Wow. She had every reason to do so and never even once. The children at the time, my, my youngest son was four. Mm-hmm. My middle son was 8. My daughter was 12. My daughter has autism, so she doesn't really kind of understand. Like, uh-huh. she, she didn't know anything. And my youngest son, Ethan, being 4, didn't understand that concept at all. But my my middle son, Dylan, at 8, he knew that Daddy was, that there were these things. He understood Daddy being angry. So if I would mm-hmm. yell at him, that that hurt, you know. I didn't have the relationship that I wanted with my kids. The crazy thing about it is, I didn't recognize that I didn't have it because we weren't going out and playing. Mm-hmm. I would come home and, and it was always, it was okay for me to come home and crash out on the couch because I was tired. I had worked, I had done this, I had done that. And I was missing so many opportunities with with my children when they were young and what we could have been doing. And one of the most terrible moments for me when this whole scenario started to unravel when my house of cards fell when i came home well let me back up just a little bit mm-hmm. um, the night i told i told my wife as i mentioned she we're going to get through this we're going to do this yes. i'm not leaving mm-hmm. so after that we went and we told my parents we live very close to my parents and we're we're very close to them as well my mom is a, is an extremely religious person that is that is the focus of my upbringing she has always been that she's very very church oriented very centered on christ and she's kind of always been our pillar she's our rock we look she to always gives support absolutely absolutely even it says i'm praying for you absolutely <laughs> even and I, w- I was a tough kid i was a tough kid mm-hmm. in my teenage years growing up but she never i mean we had we had our yelling she would tell you we've gone toe to toe but she's she never wavered. My father either. My father is a, is an extremely hard worker, a wonderful man. I am not that kid who grew up and had the terrible childhood and didn't have all the opportunities. I had every opportunity that I should have had, and probably more. Right. I mm-hmm. had I had a wonderful upbringing. I had I had tremendous parents. I had wonderful siblings. I. I can look back. I mean, sure, there were things that I wanted to do, but not every kid gets to do everything you want to do. Right. That's, that's, that's just kind of life. Yeah. So, but I, there is no, oh, this happened, so I'm this horrible person. I, I, mm-hmm. I didn't. I, I truly had a wonderful childhood, a wonderful upbringing, and just made stupid decisions as I got older and felt, well, I don't need this, and I don't need the church, and I don't, I don't need to follow these rules because I can. I'm my own person. I can, I can kind of. when I, my I thing. explore a different world. Absolutely. Yeah. Unlike many people
0: who are involved in many different situations, cases of drugs, they blame their upbringing and they blame somebody who didn't do something right. That might be true. But in the case of Jason, he admits the fact that he had a good upbringing. All the things that he did bad, he just wanted to experiment But when we come back, we're going to find out more on how Jason was able to tell his employers that it was him who was taking the drugs. This program is sponsored by Village Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you would like to learn more about Village Church, please visit villagesda.org. Are you wondering how you can spend the financial blessings God has given you? Join Village Church as we partner with the El Salvadorian Union to build the first Adventist College in El Salvador. If you would like to learn more about this opportunity, please visit villagesda.org.
1: So I went and told my folks, and we sat down and we had a meeting and we prayed about it, and I knew that I had to come forward, that I had I had to. this in the open and get ahead of it Mm -hmm. because if they had it if they knew that it was on on tape and it was eventually going to come out and I couldn't handle I wanted to I wanted to come forward and say look this is me rather than them show up at my house in front of my kids and arrest me and drag me out right so the first person outside of my family that I contacted was my medical control director who is an individual who kind of oversees the ambulances in the area. Mm-hmm. They're in charge of writing policy and, and signing off and making sure that I'm accountable to the skills that I know, that I should have. Kind of the big boss, so to speak. Right, right. That was a very difficult decision for me to have as well. Or I'm sorry, a, a difficult conversation to have because this was a man who I have literally looked into, my, into his eyes and betrayed probably 50 to 100 times by now. We've had this conversation. We've talked about it. Mm -hmm. At one point, I was the team leader for the EMS tactical team, and we worked side-by-side with him. So we had been on all of these operations and and had been very close, and we're friends. Now I have to tell this man that all of these things that have been going on is me, and I've been doing it right in front of him. So I called him up, and I said, Hey, Doc, I need to talk to you. Okay. You okay? I said no not really but we need to have a conversation he's uh-huh. like okay I'll, I'll be there where are we meeting so we met in a parking lot kind of in between our homes and I can remember my Lisa my wife drove me up there we're sitting in the car and I said honey I don't know where this is going I don't know what's right. going to happen but uh-huh. this has to happen mm-hmm. and she said you're going to be okay so I got out of the car and I got in his car and I sat down and I couldn't even look at him and I said doc all the missing drugs all the things that are going on, you can stop looking. What do you mean? I said it's me. Wow. And he was just kind of stunned. Right. And he and he said, "Are you really?" And I said, "Yeah, it's me. I I've been doing it for for this." <laughs> and he said one of the things that to this day, now I'm a little over four years later, has stuck with me. And he and he looked at me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Jason. This is going to be tough, but we're going to get you through it. We're going to get you some help because you need help before we do anything else. This is amazing. It looks like everyone
0: whom you tell is giving you support instead
1: Absolutely. of rejecting you. Absolutely. I, I fully, fully anticipated this man to say, get out of my car. Right. You'll hear from the cops. And, that was, and it was anything but. And we, and we had a conversation and we, and we talked about it for a few moments. And he told me, he said, you know that I have to go to the police because mm-hmm. the position that he's in, I mean, he has to, there's, there's, there's just no option. And, and I said, I know. And he says, but we have to get you help. That's what's most important. And that to me said, despite everything I've done, this person is still my friend. And that was the love of Christ in him because Amen. that was what I needed. Mm-hmm. And I knew then that no matter how difficult this next part of the road was going to be, that there were people that that were going to stand by me. Yeah. So from there we went and we talked to my operations manager and my director of the service. They were a little less supportive. (laughs) The one, my operations manager, um, when I went to his house, and I told him, and the doctor went with me, and he he stood by my side Mm -hmm. as we did this together. So here is, again, his support for me because he knew these conversations were tough, right? but he was right. now involved. Mm-hmm. And I told I told my operations manager what, what had happened and what I'd been doing. And he looked at me and he said, well, we, that kind of makes sense because you've, you've kind of been a jerk lately. So, okay. And this is, this is somebody who I grew up under at the company. He had always been my boss in, in one, one facet or another, mm-hmm. from my very early days at wheelchair all the way up to, to when I was a crew su- supervisor. He was my boss and he was my friend. I mean, his grandkids and my kids played baseball together. We've known each other. We've been fishing together. We, you know, we spent some time. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, it was, well, how dare you say that to me? But of all the things that he should have said to me, that was okay. Because, I mean, that's that's, a, that's, a, that's an obvious Yeah, you kind of expected that. I did. Yeah. I did. So I went and the next step was to talk to my director. At the time, my director was also my lieutenant. I, was, I worked as a reserve police officer at a local department, and he was my lieutenant at that. And when I told him what had happened, he, he looked at me and he said, well, you're not going to be a cop anymore, and you're on unpaid suspension mm-hmm. until we figure everything out. And that was our conversation. I said, okay, and I turned and left. So from there, I went and I had some very close friends, one of which was my partner, one of which was another medic that I had worked with and was also on the tactical team with me, Mm -hmm. and then a dispatch friend of mine that we had been very close, those three people. So I called them and I said, hey, guys, I need to talk to you. We need to have a conversation. So we met up and, and I told them and I said, look, this is me, this is this is what I've been doing. This is I don't know what's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And my partner at the time, and him, probably more than anybody else in the company, had a right to be angry because it's going to now look like, like a lot of people would ask, how could all this be going on? And, and you know. sitting right beside, not know. So uh-huh. are they gonna blame him? Are they gonna look, or were you covering for him? Were you uh-huh. a part of this? And he wasn't in any way, shape or form. But the potential for him to somehow get involved, get sucked in. yeah, was, was very—I mean, very real. And that, again, that betrayal to the people closest to me—it's—it was—it was difficult. So my conversations were basically, "I'm sorry, I can't tell you why, and I don't know how to fix it. I just want to say I'm sorry." Those conversations were very, very difficult for me to have, right. but going home that night and and trying to fall asleep knowing that there were still people who said I still love you you're okay you're an idiot but we're gonna get you through it probably saved my life not probably it did it absolutely saved my life because I looking back now I firmly believe if Uh I had been met with rejection at all of those points that I would have I would have ended mine I really believe that
0: so that support was key to you absolutely that we 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 don't support what you did right but we love you as a person you can
1: love the man and hate the action yes absolutely and that is i believe truly that was christ working in their hearts Mm -hmm. to soften them and to say this is still your friend this is still jason this is not he's done this horrible thing But he's still a good person and you can still support him and love him as your friend, Mm. which is what we should all do. I mean, that's I didn't deserve any of that. Yet all of these people came forward to give me that. It was that was an amazing lesson to me because in my mind, everybody was going to hate me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Everybody was going to turn on me. I would have nothing. And it was anything but that I went through a phase as this scenario kind of played out. Where and even my partner that I mentioned and I kind of turned on him because as the investigation now kind of picked up speed because Mm -hmm. now they had a person to go after. Well, then, of course, they start talking to my partner and they're talking to these other people. Hey, what did you know? What did this and that? And those conversations get had. Well, so now I'm blaming people because I went through this phase of even though I know it's me and even though I've come forward and said it's me, Mm -hmm. somehow it's still justified and it shouldn't be this bad. Like, why are they gonna come? Why do they want to lock me up? Why do they, why do they want to put me in jail? I don't, I don't understand that. Even though I, it, and it's very difficult to explain mm-hmm. because I know exactly why. I, am not, I'm not dumb. I right, right absolutely. Right, there right. needs to be punishment for what has happened. Mm-hmm. I deserve that punishment and probably more. But like I'm, in I'm, your I'm mind, me. Like, I, you can't do <laughs> yeah. this to me. Uh huh. So, the next day, Lisa, my wife called a, an old family friend of ours who had struggled with alcohol for some time and we didn't know like rehab was kind of a, it was just this thing that other people did you know that people who can't handle themselves go through you know I, that was not something I needed yeah. well I, I very much did I'm still in this denial phase mm-hmm. you know? so she calls she calls Randy up and says hey this is what Jason's going through I don't know what to do we need help bring him over so we go to his house he gets on the phone with a rehab facility that he was familiar with when you do a rehab such as that you have to go you can't be you you can't be forced you have to sign you have to walk in you have to voluntarily come in well i didn't need that but i did but i haven't accepted that i do and and randy looks at me dead to rights he says jason you're going Hmm. you need to tell them you're going you have to go you know you do Mm -hmm. i know you do everybody who loves you know you do you have to the only person who doesn't think
0: they they need to do it is you right
1: yeah right so i get on the phone with them and i and i kind of tell them you know they ask you the you know your name and this kind of thing and that and and what your problem is and and where where you're struggling and then they say, okay, are you willing to come? Are you willing to walk in on your own and, uh-huh. and join us? And I said, yeah. And they said, okay, be here, here tomorrow. So so the rehab
0: is going on whilst the investigations are going on at the same this, time.
1: I went on June 15th uh-huh. of, of 2015 was kind of my, it's another birthday for me. That was the last day I used any alcohol, any drugs narcotics, any anything that wasn't just like an over-the-counter Tylenol. Uh-huh. I, I've been completely 100% sober since June 15th of 2015. Wow. I mean, in fact, the only, the only alcohol I've even been near is mouthwash. So I'm okay, it. Oh, wow. I'm good with that. <laughs> so, um, and then on the 17th of June, so two days later, I checked into rehab in Brighton, Michigan. And my wife and my sister and my friend, Randy, Drove me up there. Uh-huh. They said, whatever it takes, you're going. They're still okay. giving you that 100% Absolutely. support. They even went as far as rehab is not cheap. <laughs> rehab is, is quite costly. Yeah. And they even went as far as to say, whatever that is, we're going to pay for. We'll figure it out later. But you're going because you need it. Wow. Because you can't get through this without mm-hmm. it. So I did. and And I went in and checked in. The toughest moment, I think for me, is... We, we made those plans on the 16th, the day after I had come forward to the doctor and everybody. So I'm going the next morning. That night, I'm at home. And at the time, it was my three children. We also had a couple nephews that were mm-hmm. living with us. They had been through some struggles in life. And I kind of brought everybody together to talk to them and say, look, this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. My nephews at the time, I want to say, were 14 and 16. So they were very much, when I explained to them what had happened, they were very much aware which is a difficult conversation to have with kids who are kind of starting down that path of their own, and you've right, been telling right, them all this right. time, uh-huh. hey, this is wrong. You shouldn't live like this. Mm-hmm. Well, now I have to stand in front of you and say, all those things I've been telling you, yeah, I'm, I did I'm guilty of them. So, how, what kind of role model is that? Yeah, it's kind of difficult. Where I've put myself up to be this amazing person to take care of them and lead them to the right way. Mm-hmm. All this time I've been, I've been lying to everyone around me and hiding from them as well. So that was tough, but I think the absolute toughest moment that I had and what was an absolute slap in the face and, and just such a huge dose of reality mm-hmm. was my son Dylan. As I mentioned, he was eight at the time. And I sat him down and I said, Dylan, daddy's sick mm-hmm. and daddy's gonna go to the hospital. Because I didn't, the concept of rehab and rehab. drug addiction and things like that. It wouldn't make he, sense he, to him. He wouldn't, but he would understand sick in hospital. Uh-huh. And I told him that and I said, and when I get home, mm-hmm. daddy's going to be home more because I'm not going to, I'm not going to work as a fireman. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to work as a policeman and I'm not going to be a medic. I don't know what's going to happen. And Dylan looked at me and he gave me a hug and he said, you know what, dad, it's okay. Cause you'll have me. And we'll have more time together. Wow. And that was such a dose of reality in that up until that moment, I had never seen or understood that Dylan's perception of this Mm -hmm. was just that daddy was never around. That I had become so focused on work and getting my next high that I was completely leaving my family Mm. behind me and and not being the father that I needed to be. And I still struggle with that today because of all those missed years and all that opportunity where I should have been this amazing dad and and just helping him and, and teaching him and here is this lesson now in hey even because when you're dad and your kid is 8 you're still a hero you know they still love you at that point and, you know that's dad you're can everything do to anything. Them. Yeah, absolutely well now dad has to sit in front of you and say i'm this horrible person based on on these actions mm. and he didn't that that was he just he knew he missed dad, and he wanted dad home. No, and this dad. was cool because N- dad no, was going to be back is be so home all the time. Absolutely. So the next morning, uh, we get up, and we drive up there, and, and and you're sitting. Of course, it's it's kind of like a doctor's office. You, you come in, and you have you know, this paperwork and things, and you fill out. Right. It's a two-week program, and you have the first couple days that you're there, you are in this big, large, open room with a bunch of beds separated by curtains. and. You just lay in bed. It's like a detox, and they want to make sure that you're physically healthy to be able mm-hmm. to do this. You get you, you can buy little phone cards to call home, but what, what are you going to call home about? What are you going to talk about? What do you, I mean, it's not like, hey, the game was great. You know, it's, it's how do you have a conversation? How do you start with that? So you're sitting in bed with, with all of these other people around you, and you're trying to tell yourself, well, I'm not like all these other people. And then you go and you see yourself in the mirror, and, yeah, you're exactly like all these, you're no better. Mm-hmm. You're probably worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just you had no reason to be this way. You had every opportunity to not have this life. Right. And right. you didn't take right. advantage of that. The guilt is just piling on, you know. And rehab is basically two weeks of teaching you a different mindset of you're broken. You you can't think like this. You, you can't do this. This is not okay. There is no justification for it. You, you've mm-hmm. made stupid decisions. You're completely 100% responsible for them, and now you need to own them. And they kind of they teach you that, and they teach you ways to cope with that, and they teach you having support from people that you know. I'm, I'm sure anyone uh, listening, most folks would understand a sponsor. You know that they, mm-hmm. they want you to have a sponsor, somebody that if you have any issues whatsoever, any any inkling, any desire, you call this person up, and you and they kind of work you through it. And right, it's That close right, person. Right. And I'm going to tell you, and I I don't know, in fact, I would say that I wouldn't recommend this to everybody, but even when I got out of rehab two weeks later, Mm -hmm. I didn't call a sponsor in the official sense of I have a person who I'm accountable to and I I call every day at certain Mm -hmm. times. What I had was my family. What I had was friends. What I had was my church family. My first coming back into church after all of this happened Uh because by now of course you know it's been in the paper and people have seen and and the the rumors abound and there are those who it's just about the story but Mm -hmm. there are so many that you walk in and maybe there even weren't words exchanged but they hug you and they tell you you know i love you you're okay or just that tight hug they didn't even have to say anything. This is a I'm, church. Like yeah.
0: your church family is Absolutely. now giving you that support Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Did you kind of feel like maybe your church family is going to reject you since you have I, gone I, through?
1: I can honestly tell you that even now today, over four years later, uh-huh. that there are times where I will, the story comes up where mm-hmm. I even now feel like there's going to be rejection. Somebody that maybe doesn't know me or or, or even maybe somebody who does that I've not talked to. Because uh-huh. there, there are people that from that day, have never spoken to me again, who I have seen maybe at the grocery store, Mm -hmm, um, maybe mm -hmm. at at the fair, and they see me, we make eye contact, we know who we are, but they'll turn and walk the other way. Mm. Or it's very obvious that this is not going to be a conversation. But your church family was there for you. They were. When you went back to church. They they very were, I mean, very much so. They, you know, hey, a lot of it was, here's a scripture. I want you to read this because this applies. This is mm-hmm. something I've been doing. People that come up, I'm praying for you. I, I want you to know that we love you. I want you to know that you're safe here, that it's okay. There's no judgments. If you need anything, call me. People, there there were some individuals who I, I knew the face, mm-hmm. but maybe didn't know the name. But they took it out of themselves to come to me and say, hey, we're here for you. You know, wow. People that, that were for my family, that let my boys know, hey, You guys need anything if you have any problems or you need to talk come to me and this this kind of support was all the way through from the very moment that i that i came forward Mm -hmm. and even one of the things i i forgot to mention the doctor that i had talked to the man who should have been the angriest at me because he is now as my as my big boss Mm -hmm. is responsible for any actions that i do so he's now torn and has to report his friend to the state for something that he was overseeing. So I've put him in a in a in terrible a very position. Difficult
0: position yeah. And
1: he had every reason to turn on me. Mm-hmm. Not only did he not turn on me, he was unbelievably supportive to my family when I was gone. When I was in rehab for two weeks, he called my wife every single day, sometimes more than once, just to check, Are you okay? Are the kids okay? Do you need a gallon of milk? Do you need me to stop and pick up something? I know this is tough. Is there anything that you need? The, that was above and beyond. Those were, he didn't wow. have to do that. That is because of his character. And again, the love of Christ shown to me through him. Amen. Because that, yeah. that is a Christ move. That, so how did you then get out of all this
0: situation? Now You have the support, you, you got the church, hmm. you went through rehab. I so
1: did. so I, I came home, um, uh-huh. when I came home, was just before the July 4th holiday and we went up north to some family property and spent a, a fairly nice vacation with, with my folks and and some other family members. Mm-hmm. When I came home, they issued a warrant for my arrest. By that time, I had an attorney. Mm-hmm. When I found that out, I went, my sister drove me up to the courthouse and I turned myself in. And of course, they put you in a cage and you know the, you have to do paperwork and they, they handcuff you and walk you down there. And you get bailed out because once that process starts, after the arraignment, well, then you have these these hearings, you know, where they come back and they, you plead and there's all this process. Mm-hmm. So fast forward kind of through all of that, and on November 23rd, 22nd or 23rd, I was, I stood in front of a judge in front of my parents, my wife, strangers, and four crew members who I had worked with side by side who were there, mm-hmm. even at that moment, to show support. And I had to stand in front of a judge and him tell me what was going to happen. And he sentenced me to 30 days in jail, as well as probation and fines and all these other things. But the big one was the jail, because Mm -hmm. now I can't go home. I I don't have my freedom. Right. I, I You don't even, when they tell you you're going to jail, they put you up in a front corner. You don't even get to hug your family and tell them goodbye. I'll see you in a little bit. There's nothing. They just get up and walk out. There's no goodbye, nothing at all. So I did that. They took me, they took me into jail. The first couple days you're in kind of this holding cell while they get you wait to get you processed and classified as to how how bad of a person you are basically and after after two days in there i was given a cell and i was actually they called it an inmate worker Mm -hmm. it's kind of like trustee but they don't trust you so it's inmate worker that was a dorm with like 22, 23 other guys with you have two toilets and a shower on the wall behind this kind of half wall. There's no privacy. You're sleeping on a, on a six by two steel cot with a mattress. You don't even get a pillow. You get this one wool blanket and it's it's a whole different kind of life. Nobody wants. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's a reason nobody wants to go to jail. Right. Let right, me tell you. Right. But what it does is it gives you this opportunity to stop for self-reflection and to say, this is not me. This is not where I want to be. What do I need to do to, do better. to get back, to, yeah. to get to out of here? Mm-hmm. So I picked up my Bible, and I started reading, and I started listening and, and feeling that love and feeling that, that opportunity that no matter what I have done, no matter how evil I've become, mm-hmm. nobody's given up on me yet. God's not given up on me. My friends haven't given up on me. I'm gonna be okay I can do this I can get through this. I didn't talk much when I was in jail just because I I, I just didn't want that relationship. I didn't want to tell people where what I have done from uh-huh. I mean I, I'm I was a medic I was a cop I was a fireman and here I am in jail because I was an addict you know so I had all of these great things all of this opportunity in front of me and I've just screwed it up. And now, now I'm at the very bottom. How do I deal with it? How do I tell you, I had no reason. I'm just stupid and made horrible decisions.
0: So you just needed time to yourself and yeah. with your Bible. Yeah.
1: And just, you, when you're in there, you get, even when you get to talk to your family, you get 20 minutes a week, mm-hmm. one day a week, and it's through a video screen. They come in and they sit in a cubicle away from where you are, and they talk to you, and you're on a, like a telephone, but you're looking at a monitor. There's no privacy. There's no being able to hug your kids and all that. And and I told Lisa I didn't want them there. I didn't want my kids to ever remember dad being in jail. They know that dad was in jail. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, especially now, as they know my story. Dylan has actually been a part of me telling it a couple of times. Right. But I didn't want them to ever have in their mind that picture of me through a jail monitor. So mm-hmm. they never came. Lisa came every day, or I'm I'm sorry every every opportunity every Sunday that she had, she was there, and we got our Should 20 come minutes. And visit Absolutely, you. I got cards from from all kinds of folks. It's in jail; they give you these little. It's a special postcard. You can't just send a letter, you know. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they just words of support. Just we're here. We're thinking about you. We know you're struggling, but when you get out, we're still mm-hmm. going to be here that wow. constant support throughout everything literally saved my life Wow! without a
0: doubt that's amazing so now you got to uh, to get back to god you're studying the bible and you go through the jail
1: period mm-hmm. and when you get out what, what happened when i got out i the first thing i needed was to find work mm-hmm. because i had bills to pay at the time my wife wasn't working so she was, as I mentioned, a, a special needs daughter, so she mm-hmm. was stay-at-home and a phenomenal mom. She genuinely is. She's, she definitely has a gift, and her patience is unbelievable. And uh, certainly somebody like me who's put her through what I've put her through, <laughs> right. for her to still be standing there is, uh-huh. is, is a blessing. It's a true blessing. Amen. So I went to the doctor's office that I had been working for, and I told him, what do you think, doc? And he says, Jason, I like you. You're good at what you do. I want you here, but right now I can't trust you, but I'm going to let you work here. We're going to watch you, and you're going to do testing, and you're going to do all of these things because you're going to be accountable, and if for any reason you screw up, you're out, but I'm going to give you that shot. And he wow! Didn't. The same doctor gave you this. No, th- this was the the pain clinic doctor. Okay. Okay. Yep, okay. No. Yep, no. Nope, nope. The other the medical control physician. His hands were kind of tied because I had actually they had suspended my medic license. Okay. Um, and in that in, in that moment for the investigation. Okay. Um, After the sentence was done, I did with the state what's called a consent order, which is where if you meet the terms of a certain probation, you can keep your license as long as you continue to meet those terms. If you screw that up, then they take your license and it's automatic. So they did let me keep my paramedic license as long as I met criteria, which involved drug testing and Mm -hmm. meetings Mm -hmm. and and all of these type accountability. So as long as I had that, the doctor at the pain clinic was going to let me work, and he did. And... God bless him. If, if he hadn't, we would have lost the house. We cause we had no other source of income. That hmm. just wasn't. And I couldn't turn to anybody else and say, Hey, I'm an idiot. Will you pay my bills? That's just not that going to, I mean, hard. it's not going to work. I yeah. don't know if I could even, if I could do that. <laughs> even if I could ask who can do that, you know, <laughs> nobody. So then my wife went back to school, um, got a job, made things a little bit easier, <laughs> but it was, it was a, a, a genuine blessing for that to happen. And as I sort of acclimated to my new life, like mm-hmm. I'm 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 home a lot more. We're doing a lot more things. I'm sleeping well at night. I'm spending time with my family, and refocused, refocused on where I needed to be, with God at the center, with that church experience. Uh-huh. This is what is most important, and everything else. If you if you kind of keep your eye on that, just sort of falls into place. Even when you make the mistakes, mm-hmm. you know it's okay because that's we're human we're going to make mistakes everybody understands it yeah and and so that helped that helped keep me accountable and that was that was hugely instrumental a great example for my children to see is knowing that no matter what dad did because they very plainly can see that people are supporting dad and they know dad screwed up big but people still love him that's an example that I can't script. That's something to experience that they can see. Mm-hmm. And so that was pretty pretty amazing for me. The biggest lesson for me uh-huh. is to, to don't count people out. Amen. Believe in. Go forward. Talk. Ask for help. Mm-hmm. Be open about your mistakes. Allow people to love you. Don't shut them out. People are going to support you. There's going to be some that won't. But the vast majority of people are going to understand that they make that you make mistakes just like right. they do, uh-huh. and you know just kind of a, a little addition to it. From that moment, I am now I have been rehired working on an ambulance, and have actually made it back to a crew supervisor position. So my life has gone wow completely full circle. Except now, full circle, I have Christ at the center Amen. of me and my family.
0: This is Michael Sarona, and you have been listening to Why I Am Here. For more episodes, please visit VillagesDA.org. We would like to thank Pastor Ron Kelly and his pastoral staff for making this show a reality. We would also like to thank Village Seventh day Adventist Church in Barron Springs, Michigan, for their support and sponsoring this show. If you would like your story to be featured on this show, please visit VillagesDA.org. If you have enjoyed this show, Please remember to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. You can also listen to this show on your favorite podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.